Well, hey, the other day I saw um, an elderly man um, reach down in a parking lot to pick up something off of the ground. Can you guess what it was? A penny. Like, we, we all know the same guy, right? Like, who, who, who picks up pennies off of the ground? Okay, all right. So those who are old at heart as well, I can see, because you're definitely not elderly over there. But, you know, who values pennies? I, the only people I know who really value penny, pennies are the elderly and, and children. Children. Uh, both will pick up a penny and not knowing where it's been, right? I mean, you see someone pick up a penny on a parking lot, you're like, seriously, I, do you know where that has been? No, you don't know where that's been. And, and children will do the same. They'll pick up a coin and, and one will stick it in their pocket while another will probably put it somewhere that you shouldn't. If you have ever been a kid who picked up a coin or you know kids that picked up coins, you probably have your own story of your own of a coin that disappeared into a part of a body that was not supposed to go there. I don't know if you haven't. Maybe it's just me. I'm talking to myself. So I'm looking at everyone's faces like, no, it's never happened to anyone we know. What kind of parents did you have? (laughs) They were awesome. (laughs) Speaking of kids and the things that they do with coins, you know, it's kind of funny that when kids are little, they'll easily give up 10 dimes for a roll of 50 pennies. I don't know if you ever tried to trick a kid into doing that. I might have done that to my kids to test to see how Asian they were, to see if they were born in knowing math right away or not. Uh, but it isn't really until a teacher, a teacher bursts their bubble that they learn that 10 dimes are literally worth how much compared to 50 pennies? We don't have a lot of Asians here. It's two times, two times, two times. 50 is half, 100, okay. And so this reality of what happens when you learn the true value of something sets in. This reality sets in when you learn the true value of something. Learning the true value of something has the power to change the way you value it, right? I mean, try to hand a first grader a roll of pennies for their ten dimes, and what will they tell you? No way, Jose! They'll know better than that. And speaking of coins, last week we looked at a teaching of Jesus recorded by a guy by the name of Luke where Jesus was using an illustration. As you, If you were here last week, you remember he was using an illustration with coins to literally reset people's perspective regarding the value of a person's life. In particular, Jesus told this story in response to a group of people we call Pharisees who were religious leaders at the time and they saw Jesus hanging out with people from backgrounds and experiences that rightly earned them the label of sinners. Uh, they were calling them sinners, not because they were being uber judgmental, but these were people that were literally known as people who were doing things that were not only against God's law, but it was against every idea of human law. And to be super clear, Jesus was hanging out with people who had embraced a life living after their own will and their own way, and as a result, made the kind of choices that you would say were incongruent with God's standards. But what made these people different was that Jesus was with them because they were following Jesus. The difference between just a regular old sinner and those whom Jesus was surrounding himself that were tax collectors and sinners was that they 
were following Jesus. In fact, our text is in Luke chapter 15. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to there, whatever copy of the scripture. But if you look at Luke chapter 14, you'll see that Jesus didn't, like, in, in some instances he did. He inserted himself amongst a group of people who are sinners. But in this instance, those who were sinners were following Jesus. They were drawn to Jesus. And Jesus didn't turn them away because of their reputation or who they were. The problem was that because the Pharisees couldn't understand with clarity who Jesus was, they couldn't understand what was happening in the lives of those choosing to follow Jesus. They didn't understand God's value of the lives that Jesus surrounded himself with. And consequently, the Pharisees couldn't understand the value of Jesus' seemingly odd obsession with regularly being seen with people who were outcasts to the Jewish faith. And this points to a truth that is as relevant back then as it is today, that Jesus lived the kind of life where people who were nothing like Jesus happened to like Jesus. And I think if you're someone who loves and follows Jesus, there's something we can learn about the way Jesus lived his life that we could spend the rest of our lives trying to figure out how to become a person who, (laughs) Jesus, God in flesh, was able to find himself in the company of people who were nothing like him, but liked him. And the truth was, they wanted to become like him. Now, what if you're not sure if you believe everything you've heard about Jesus and the Bible? Why is this passage of Scripture important? Well, remember when I said this, learning the true value of something has the power to change the way you value. Remember when I said this? It was just a second ago. (laughs) If you haven't come to understand not only how much Jesus loves you, but why Jesus loves you, you can live your whole life without understanding your life's true value. And when you don't understand the true value of your life, here's what you do. Like when you don't understand what your life is actually worth, you make decisions that look a lot like a five-year-old trading dimes for 50 pennies. You know what I mean? Like when you don't understand the value of your life, you end up making very foolish decisions that if you understood the value that God had for your life, you would not have made those decisions. You would not have thrown your life into that thing if you knew just how valuable you were to God. And if this is you, if you're someone who maybe feels disconnected from God in this current season of life or just all of your life you have felt disconnected from God, and Jesus and the Bible seems more like stuff fairy tales are made up of instead of realities that 
that hope in this life is dependent on, then Jesus' story about the prodigal son is as much for you as it is for the follower of Jesus who has made a commitment to increasingly submit all of life to Jesus as master and savior day after day after day after day. So let's look at a teaching that Jesus gives a room full of religious leaders and sinners alike and see if we can learn something about what it is that touches the heartbeat of God. Luke chapter 15. This is the story. The parable of the lost son. Verse 11 says this. A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me a share of the estate I have coming to me. And so he distributed the assets to them. Now, I don't know if you've, (laughs) I don't know if you've ever had a thought like this regarding your relationship to your own parents. But this younger son was thinking to himself, you know, I know that when my dad dies, I'm going to get a bunch of his stuff. And man, it would be great just to get that now. It'd be great just to get that now. And the crazy thing here, if you look at the text, I don't know if you've ever noticed this. In fact, I've been following Jesus for a long time and I've read this a lot. I've actually taught this passage a lot. I didn't notice this till now, so judge me if you want. (laughs) But the crazy thing is the father didn't just give one son his half. He gave them both their half, which is something that will be extremely important to remember as we listen to the son later, the older son later, talk about the father not giving him anything, which is a bunch of baloney. But the father gave them their inheritance. He said, you get half and you get half. And so two sons, not just one, found themselves benefactors of their promised inheritance on that same day. Verse 13, it says this. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. And after he spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. And then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. I don't think anyone here is Jewish and grew up in the first century. But even the idea of us as Americans, Gentiles here in 2023, being sent out to feed pigs doesn't seem quite something that you are like really excited to. It isn't something that you're like, hey, let me put this on my be real. Or you know, like, let me put a post. Like this isn't something that you are really excited about doing. And this is what was happening. And then he went to work for that citizen country to feed pigs. And he said he no longer, uh, he longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating. But no one would give him anything. And so in his mind, the younger brother had this brilliant escape plan for how life would be. It started out strong. He thought, you know what? I'm going to get what I need from my dad and I'm going to live life my way. I'm going to get out of his house. You know, and if his dad was anything like my dad, and honestly, I've said these to my kids too. 
You know, well, when you have your own house, you can. Anyone ever, you have that parent say that? Like, well, when you have your own house, you can do what you want to, right? We all have the same parent. And that's what he had. This is what he, the younger brother, he had this plan. He had this plan. I'm, I want to do what I want to do. I'm going to go where I want to go. And it started out strong, but eventually he blew through all his money. And it was, <laughs> and if it wasn't bad enough to add insult to injury, times in that, in that, in that country got tough. And, and he hadn't planned for famine in his runaway plan. Like, first of all, he didn't plan to run out of money. And second of all, he didn't plan that in his running away, he would find himself in the middle of a famine. And here's the sad truth about runaway plans. Runaway plans rarely account for unplanned events. Verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of the father's hired workers have more than enough food and here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. And so, like you and I, when things don't go as we plan them to go, what do you do when things don't go how you plan them to go? What do you do? You make new plans, right? Things don't go the way you think they should go. And so what do you do? You're like, well, let me change up my plans. Let me make some new plans. And here's what the younger son's plans entailed. He was going to go home and he was going to tell his father this. He was going to say, dad, I sinned against heaven and against you. He came to this realization that he didn't just make a mistake. He not only sinned against his father, but against God. And he felt that there was something not only between him and his father that he needed to make amends with, but he realized that there was something that he had done to break his heavenly father's heart. And he said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to tell him I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And what does that exactly mean? Like, what does that mean? Uh, you know, well, unless you're... <laughs> part of this culture, when you tell your dad that you want your part of the inheritance, you're basically saying, dad, you're dead to me. And when that son left his father's home, the relationship died. A fracture occurred. A brokenness happened that the son thought could not be repaired. And so the son had a plan. He said, I know you're not going to take me back as your son, but just take me back as your hired worker. I'm not asking for my room back. I'm not asking for any rights as a son. You don't even have to set a table, set a seat for me at the table during holiday. I, I just want to be on the property. I, can I just be on the property? Just, just let me be a servant. Just, just let me be a servant. I, I, I know what I did was despicable. I, I'm so sorry. Just let me be a servant. And, and, and this, <laughs> this was the younger son's plans. It was on his terms. 
about how he would get back into a better place of life. And here's the thing, as he's making these plans, he really doesn't know what he's going to get. Like, when he comes back, will the door be bolted? Uh, when he finally gets back, will he be told to get lost? Will he be handed a checklist? You know, will, will, he, will he find that there are some hoops that he would need to jump through? Like, when he finds his way back home, will his father look at him and be like, Hey, everybody, look who's back. Wow, you're not looking too good. So you want to come back, huh? Okay, but here's what you need to do. Is he going to get a probationary period? Will he start like in the lower servant quarter for like three months and then like slowly move his way up to like full servant status? I don't, I don't know. Like I, the scripture doesn't tell us. We can assume. And really, I don't mean to beat a dead horse about this point of Jesus' teaching, but it's important for us to catch what is happening here. This kid is coming down the road, proverbially with a speech in his hand. A speech in his back pocket. And he's rehearsing it over, at least I can see him rehearsing this over and over and over in his mind. And in his mind, he has already determined what the environment will be like. And he has determined the terms that will actually end up coming into fruition for his father to take him back. And I've been around churches for a long time. And unfortunately, churches are filled with a lot of people who find themselves at a point in their life where they realize that they had taken the life that God had given them and squandered it, chasing after their own will and their own way, only to find themselves saying, okay, God, I know I've damaged my relationship with you. I've damaged my relationships for sure with others. But I want to make it right. So whatever you tell me to do, I'll do it. I'm just glad to be back. I'm glad to be here. But in reality, churches are filled with people who really have their own plan and how they think they can make things right in God's eyes. I've messed up. I'm just going to go back to church. I've messed up. I'm going to start serving. I've messed up. How many I go to this Bible study? You know, this is, this is, if I do this, then God will love me. Then, then, then God will accept me. And then, then my sins will be forgiven. And, and then I'll be able to kind of feel like I'm reconnected with God. If only, yes, I, I will, I will tell God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. But really, really, I, I'm a younger, I'm a younger son who has already created a script. And it's in, it's in my back pocket and, I, and I'm ready to tell God what I'm going to do for him so I can convince him like I'm good enough. Verse 20 says this. So the younger son got up and he went to his father, but while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran He threw his arms around his neck and he kissed him. And so now you've got this 
kid coming down the road with a speech in his back pocket, and now and, and then you've got this dad who's who's coming off the front porch in, 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 in a full sprint, and he ran to his son, and he threw his arms around him, and he started kissing him. And what a huge shock it must have been for his son. This son who is prepared to jump through some hoops, who's already thought about it. Like, if, if my dad asked me to do this, I, I, I'll be willing to jump through the hoops. But he's met with a father who is sprinting, running down the road toward him in a fury. <laughs> and the kid's probably thinking, oh man, dad is so mad at me right now. He's probably going to drop kick me in the face. Like, this, this is, all right, here he comes. Here he comes. What? And in the middle of this kissing and surrounding him of this profuse type of exuberance for seeing his only son, somewhere in the midst of all of that, the younger son comes to and is able to, I don't know, maybe push himself off his dad and be like, okay, dad, dad, hold on a second, hold on a second. I have something, I have something I want to tell you. At some point, he gets to say this in verse 21. Father, I've sinned against heaven in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I know I'm putting my own spin in the here, but I, I would imagine he started right into the next part where he wanted to say, look, so I, I get it, I get it. I just, you're not going to call me your son, so can I just come back? Can I just be a servant? Can I just, I'm hungry. Look at me. I've been feeding pigs. Like, I just... Like, I know you've got some clothes, and, and maybe you don't even have to give me new clothes. I can take one of the servant's clothes, and can I just come back, please? Can I just come back, please? And somewhere between him saying, I'm sorry, I know I've sinned against you, and God, the Father interrupts this speech that has been well prepared and says to him, Quick. Hey, come, come, come. He tells his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost. And now my son is found. So they began to celebrate. In the moment before hearing his dad say this, the son, he was probably worried about his speech. Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven. That part needed to come out. And for you and I, between our heavenly father, that part needs to come out. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That part needed to come out too, because that was, that was true. And for you and I, that, that part before our Heavenly Father kind of needs to come out. Like, God, I, I'm not worthy of you. I get it. 
But the part with the terms on it that describes how we get back into God's grace, good graces, as we'll find out, our Heavenly Father has already got that part figured out. And like I said, I don't know how the father interrupts the son. Maybe he puts his hand over his son's mouth. It's like, shh, shh. That's all I needed to hear. In fact, when I saw you coming up over the hill, that was all, actually, I needed to see. And if this was like a stupid 90s rom-com, he would be like, you had me at father. <laughs> had me at hello. Anyways, And so we have this amazing story of God restoring people through this parable of the lost son. About the celebration of something that was lost but now is found, something that was considered dead but is now alive. But it should go without saying there were two people in this story who weren't really happy to see this younger son coming home. First was the older brother, because he was the do-gooder. <laughs> and, and listen, listen, it's okay to be a do-gooder. A- a- actually, it's, it's really good. That's why they call him good. Being a do-gooder is good. You don't have to have some crazy story like the runaway son to experience God's grace. But you also have to realize that being a do-gooder doesn't make you deserving of God's grace either. So the first person who wasn't happy to see the son it was the older brother. Second one, really not as important, but I would be, I'd probably guess it was the fattened calf, or maybe. Now, I don't know what kind of father you had growing up. I don't know what kind of God you had in mind when you, in your own journey, came to the point where you finally decided that you had had enough of running away from God and his plan. You've had enough of going after the things that you wanted only to find yourself with nothing and everything that you didn't want. I don't know what took you to that place. I don't know what kind of God you expected on the other side of your speech that you created as you tried to find your way back to God. I don't know what kind of terms maybe you set for yourself that you kind of predetermine would be the terms in which you would find yourself reconnected with God. But if I took my cues from what Jesus reveals to us about our Heavenly Father, I, 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 think, I think He would want us to be reminded of this, that every one of us is extremely, extravagantly Valuable to him. In fact, I believe this is the greatest example of what some of you have heard me say over the years, which is this. That there is nothing you can do to make God love you anymore. And there is nothing you have done that will cause God to love you any less. Whether you know this or not, you are a child of God. And He loves you.
It's not enough for God for you to just be on the property. (laughs) I meet Christians all the time. Kind of live their life like this. You know, I'm at church. I went to small group. No. Ah, I picked up a reading plan. Just on the property. <laughs> but they haven't realized that the Father is just waiting to grab them, to hold them, to kiss them. Yesterday, I'm going to throw my notes away for just a second. Yesterday, I was at a funeral of a young man who unexpectedly passed away. And over this last week, he was young. He's very young. Father is like my age. I was reminded very keenly just how much fathers love their sons. And like this son and this father, (laughs) you want to talk about prodigal and things are tough? It was tough. And, and, I want, to, I want to let you know something. Those of you who call yourself Clarity Church, I, I know sometimes you wonder, like, is, is, is God doing something with this? Like, us gathered together, like, is it making a difference? Do you know that this young man started coming back to church and he started reuniting, reigniting his relationship with his father by inviting him to come here? He, came, they, they, he started coming here and he was coming to church with his dad, who he hadn't talked to forever. And as the dad told me and as the brothers told me, like they found that like super deeply meaningful being with you. Like, did you know that? <laughs> like, like this mundane thing that we do, like, oh, not that many people here. Everybody's coming late. Like, well, this doesn't even matter. Like, this matters. I don't know if you know this. Like, this matters. And as I, as I sat this week just listening to this father talk about his love for his son, how he wish he could hold him again, how we wish he could hug him because I'm just reminded of the Heavenly Father who loves you so, so much. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more and then nothing you have done that will cause God to love you less. Now, it'd be great if this is where the story ended. But it doesn't. It's true that Jesus wanted the Pharisees that he was addressing with this whole parable to understand that God values the lost who are found. Like that's the main point. You know, the sinners who come to Jesus, who come to their senses and decide to set their feet on the journey back to God by following Jesus. Jesus wanted the Pharisees to know that these people are valuable to God. But the but Jesus also wanted the Pharisees to learn something about how God, listen, I don't know if you've, recognize this, but Jesus wanted to let the Pharisees know 
He wanted them to learn something about how God values them. Verse 25. Now the older son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard the music dancing. He summoned one of the servants, questioning what are what these things meant. Well, your, your brother is here, he told him. And your father has slaughtered the, fat, slaughtered the fattened calf because he has taken him back safe and sound. And then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and said, shame on you. Shame on you. Is that what he said? No. It says, the father came out and pleaded with him. But the older son replied to his father, look, I've been slaving many years for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders. Never disobeyed your orders. Okay. Maybe you were slaving. I'll give you that. Never? Okay. Whatever. Yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. Remember what we said in the beginning? What did he get? Half of what? Okay. I never disobeyed you. You didn't give me anything. Well, when this son of yours, not my brother, when this son of yours, it sounds like me when I'm mad at my kids, honey, go talk to your son. Honey, go talk to your daughter. (laughs) This son of yours who came and devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. The father looks at him and says, Son, you you're always with me it, everything i have is yours we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost. And he was found. You know, it's really common for churches to say that they believe what Jesus said when he gave us the great commandments. Right? To love the Lord our God with what? All our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second, which is like it, to what? Love our neighbor as ourselves. I don't know a church that does not believe that. If they don't, they're not a church. But it's also common for churches to say that they believe in the Great Commission. They believe in the Great Commandments and the Great Commission, which says this, Matthew 28, 19-20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you, and remember I am with you always to the end of the age. The problem is, if we don't understand the value of Jesus' Great Commission, we can fail to be the kind of people who live out the great commandments. This should be something of concern to those of us who consider ourselves followers of Jesus. And this passage of scripture that we've been looking at over the past three weeks wants to address that. And if there's anything we've learned over the past couple weeks, it's this. 
that everything that Jesus lived and died for was shaped by a clear understanding of what God values. He values the one in sake of the 99. He values that one coin, even though nine are still in the pocket. He values the one that is lost. And if we follow Christ and want to live a life worth living and dying for, it would do us all good to confront ourselves with the question, am I holding my heart's intentions as well as my everyday decisions, accountable to the reality of God's mission in the world? Like, am I holding my thoughts and my intentions and the decisions I make every single day up to the standard, which is God's mission in the world, to seek and save the lost? Okay, Phil, last time I checked, I didn't hold up my dietary habits up to whether or not this helps God accomplish his mission in the world. You know what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying? We can go there. We can talk about that. But are we? Like, that's just a, just a valid question. Like, are we? Because I think we should. Don't you? In light of everything that God has told us through his word, everything that Jesus was trying to communicate, even in this passage, I think, I think he would want us to know that the things that God values are the things that we should value. The things that Jesus lived for should be the things that we live for. And, and here's the really good, good news. The things that Jesus died for, um, if you follow the equation, you'd be like, okay, it's the thing that we die for. No, 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 no. Actually, the thing that Jesus died for is the thing that we get to live for. Second Corinthians says this, God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. Jesus had this. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. Some other translations say this ministry of reconciliation. Like this was Jesus's and now it's yours. Like this was Jesus's and this is ours. And so who are we now? We are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. Like, like the father to the older brother. Come on, come on, come on, come on. I, I know you're stuck in your own way. In your, I, I know, I, I know you want to, I know you want to look at life in your own, like, lens and, but like, just listen, listen to me for a second. Listen to me for a second. The lost can be found. And you can be a part of not only seeing that happen, but I want you to be a part of celebrating when the dead has come to life. And so we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. And we speak for Christ. And when we plead, come back to God. There's so many things you can say about this message. But what I want us to remember is that when we learn the value of things, it changes the way we value things.
And I think for each of us, there is something that God wants to do in our hearts. Whether it might be understanding that God loves you. So you can find yourselves out of this rut of living in your own way. Finding yourselves caught eating from pigs food stuff. I don't even know what you call it. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like caught in this cycle of paying for the consequences of the things you did wrong, but also on top of that, you're like suffering the consequences of things you didn't even expect. God wants you to know that you're valuable. He loves you. The only speech you need is, God, I am sorry. I have sinned against you. If I'm honest with you, I am not worthy. But I would assume that some of you are not in that place. Some of you are good when it comes to your standard with God. But you know what? It's been a while. It's been a while since your life has looked like 2 Corinthians 5.20. It's been a while since the decisions of your life, the actions of your life, has looked like this. Hey, you, come back to God. It's been a while since the things you invest in, the time that you spend, has found you participating in something that looks like, hey, come back to God. And I think God would want to let you today, let you know today, like, let's change that. Let's change that. And He wants to invite you to the party that He started. He ran out first. But He's inviting us into this reality of seeing the lost become found.